0: From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, this is Earth Eats, and I'm your host, Kate Young.
1: Do we need new drip? Do we need new soil? Do we need better lighting? Do we need a better location? It's problem-solving. so, And it's problem-solving you can eat.
0: (laughs) This week on our show, we start the new year off right, with plants. We have a story about how you might get more plants into your diet, and what you might learn and teach while growing plants plus a story about slow food from Josephine McRobbie, a winter cocktail recipe from Cardinal Spirits, and more. All coming up in the next hour here on Earth Eats, so stay with us.
2: is produced from the campus of Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. We wish to acknowledge and honor the indigenous communities native to this region and recognize that Indiana University Bloomington is built on indigenous homelands and resources. We recognize the Miami, Delaware, Potawatomi, and Shawnee people as past, present, and future caretakers of this land.
0: Starting a new year, many of us make plans to do better in one way or another. Maybe by, say, improving your diet. It might be nice to think about adding to your diet rather than restricting. Next up we have a story from a couple of years ago about a plant-eating challenge through the Healthy IU program here at Indiana University in Bloomington.
3: Asparagus, bell pepper, cabbage, carrot. Cauliflower, celery, green onion, lettuce, mushroom, napa cabbage, hazelnut, peanut, sesame seed, sunflower seed. I'm Steven
4: Lalovic. I'm a registered dietitian for the IU Health Center and Healthy IU which is the University Workplace Wellness Program. Healthy IU serves all the IU campuses throughout the state and we provide a variety of programs and services, all of which are free of charge to IU employees. Our most popular program is our health screening program where you get your height, weight, blood pressure, um, and cholesterol and glucose measured. Um, We also offer one-on-one nutrition counseling. One of our best ways to engage employees is through um, various challenges that we do. We've done sleep challenge, weight loss challenge, stair climbing challenge, and our most recent one that we just completed was a nutrition challenge called Back to Our Roots. The Back to Our Roots Plan eating challenge was a three-week challenge and it encouraged employees to increase the variety of different plants that they consumed. So this would include vegetables, fruits, grains, nuts, and seeds, beans, herbs, and spices. Each week, uh, participants tracked how many different plant foods they ate, and um, they set a goal each week and and tried to achieve
3: their goal. Garlic, clove, nutmeg, oregano, pepper. I took the plant-eating
0: challenge, and I kept a radio diary with my 12-year-old son, Cosmo.
3: Hi, my name is Cosmo Pearson-Young, and I go to Templeton Elementary.
0: It has an online
3: interface, a checklist of different plant foods. Put in the plants that you've eaten today, and then click Save and Continue.
4: The first version of the challenge that I created was just a bunch of blank spaces, and I think that would not have gone as well as it did in its current format, where instead of just a bunch of blank spaces, it became more of a checklist and you'd click on things as you would eat them and it was counting those as you clicked
3: click save and continue
4: so yeah it was more interactive that way it also helped to prompt you to to see those things that were maybe opportunities to eat so then you could then click on them after you ate them
3: click save and continue
0: cumin cardamom <laughs> cloves nutmeg
3: apple banana
0: i asked steven about Berry. the thinking behind the yes. challenge why is it a good idea to have a variety of plant foods in your diet?
4: One of the first times that I really considered doing a challenge like this was when I was preparing a presentation for employees about the gut microbiome and the, the, the benefits of the um, bacteria that we have in our digestive tract. And one of the ways to promote a, a healthier digestive tract and to promote a greater diversity of bacterial species is to make sure that you're eating a diversity of different plant species. And also there are many different nutrients and phytonutrients found in different plants. And it's it's not something you can get from just one or two plants. And so by making sure you're including a variety through that variety, there can be a lot of different uh, health benefits.
0: That's really interesting to think about improving gut health through a variety of plants. Because what you mostly hear these days is you know eating probiotics, eating fermented foods, and hearing that all these different kinds of plants have these carry these different kinds of microorganisms that, that improve health.
4: I guess it helps to distinguish between probiotics and prebiotics. So the probiotics would be those fermented foods or or supplements that contain the actual live bacteria, um, whereas prebiotics are the food that the bacteria eat. And in the form of plant foods, this would primarily be fiber. So there are are different types of fiber found in different plants, and each different type of fiber feeds a different type of bacterial species, So, so to promote that diversity, it helps to make sure that you're eating different plants.
0: So, could you just tell us what phytonutrients are? What's the difference between a nutrient and a phytonutrient?
4: So, generally, when we think of nutrients, we think of things like vitamins and minerals and fats, proteins, carbohydrates. Um, phytonutrients are other compounds that we find in plants. Um, so, phyto meaning plant, plant nutrients. And um, there are different types of phytonutrients. I think there are Thousands of different types and, and these compounds Have a lot of different health benefits associated with them in particular uh, Many of them help to reduce inflammation in the body um, And a lot of a lot of chronic diseases have an inflammatory component So by eating more plants by eating more of those different colors We can help to keep inflammation in check and, and maybe prevent a lot of those chronic diseases.
0: I filled out the tracker with my son, and on the first day I said I had some chutney, and there was peach in the chutney, but it wasn't a full serving of peach. I asked Cosmo what he thought about that.
3: I think that you just have to eat the fruit raw because it's kind of like if you eat tortilla chips, then you can't as
0: corn. That's kind of what it's like, but I don't think you should be able to do that. And so he was kind of surprised by that. He didn't think that any junk food should count.
4: Yeah, we intentionally left the the rules of the challenge more open-ended so that people could interpret how they wanted to categorize things on a personal level, because we're all coming from a different place in our lives. You know, Some of us may want to focus more on strictly whole plant foods, whereas others may be making a step in the right direction, including some more of those processed plant foods that still might have some health benefits.
0: And as the weeks of the challenge went on, I found myself searching for new ways to add additional plants to the list. I was seeking out that variety instead of just sticking to my old favorites. And though I was the only one taking the challenge, the whole family was in on it. Carl came home with a pineapple one day and he made a dish with farro with the intention of adding a new grain for the week. Garbanzo beans,
3: kidney beans, lentils, peas, pinto beans, Chamomile, cinnamon,
0: clove, ginger. The whole time it felt like a game. I was competing with myself somehow, and it never felt restrictive.
4: What we wanted through the challenge was for people to have a mindset of more rather than less. Oftentimes when we think of eating or healthy eating, we think it means restricting But in the case of these plant foods, they provide a lot of health benefits, and by increasing the amount and eating more of them, we can reap a lot of those benefits.
0: Tomato, coconut, peach. If you want to take a look at the Back to Our Roots plant eating challenge, you can go to the Healthy IU website. And we'll have a link for that on our website, eartheats.org. Great
3: job. You met your goal for week three. Your goal, 65 plants. You ate 69 plants. Congratulations.
0: Thanks for your help.
3: No problem. Cranberry, pineapple, plantain, strawberry, farro, oats, almond, and tangerine.
0: (sighs) For the record, my child's voice no longer sounds like that. He's in high school now. I hope that story offered some inspiration for starting off on the right foot for 2021. Later in the show, we'll hear about growing plants, the edible kind. Stay with us. For many rural towns across the country, improving water quality is an effort that takes years and millions of dollars to fix. Harvest Public Media's Seth Bodine reports how some rural towns struggle to keep up with the improvements.
5: Cheryl LeFever doesn't drink the water in the small town of Hobart, Oklahoma, without a filter. Without that filter, sometimes the water smells like chlorine or rust, or sometimes even comes out brown.
6: Some days it's like this, you know, clear and just fine, and some days it's got all of that gunk in it.
5: That gunk she's referring to, that's what she's seen in her filter. She says she has to clean it about every two weeks. What is that in there?
6: It, I don't know, like dirt, deposits? I'm not sure. But these little, these little brown circle-like ones, that's a constant.
5: Despite the color and smell, a recent EPA report says the water is fine. But Hobart had even bigger problems about a decade ago. Sediment started filling up the lake, and the water had a lot of sediment in it. That caused all sorts of problems in the water.
1: The taste and odor was just so horrendous that we couldn't treat it.
5: That's Joe Tipton, the water superintendent for Hobart. He says the city is dredging the lake and revamping its water treatment facility. It's a huge undertaking and has a hefty price tag up to $18 million. Still, the water sometimes comes out brown. Tipton says it might be due to the aging pipes in town. Lefever says she sees improvement charges on her utility bill each month, but after 10 years, she's tired of waiting.
6: Granted, it's, you've got your sewer and trash and, and stuff on there as well, but $100 a month and I have to buy water and sometimes my dogs won't even drink it? You know, it's frustrating.
5: Tipton estimates the renovation project will be finished within the next two years. City manager Ashley Slaughterbeck says replacing some of the old pipes in town is feasible, but not until work at Rocky Lake is finished. Checking off one improvement to move to another. Hubert isn't alone. Eric Olson is the strategic director of health at the Natural Resource Defense Council. He says small rural towns across the country often struggle to keep water safe. They often have a disproportionate number of violations and compliance problems because they don't have the economies of scale and therefore they often cannot afford the treatment
1: um, that would be needed to remove contaminants.
5: The problem is so widespread that the U.S. Department of Agriculture has handed out nearly $900 million this year in loans and grants to rural towns in 43 states. It's supposed to update their water systems, but Olson says the money is a drop in the bucket compared to what's needed to solve the widespread problem in rural areas. The total needs for upgrading and fixing um, drinking water systems in the U.S. are about $1 trillion. Even when towns get the loans they need, they have to worry about paying it off. Bob Copeland is the city manager of Hollis, Oklahoma. His town of a little over a thousand people received a mix of grants and loans from the USDA and Indian Health Service to help fix the nitrate violations in the water. And while the water is much better now, he worries about the town's ability to pay off the loans in the future.
7: Like a lot of small towns, we have a declining population, and uh, you know, it's uh, we've had to raise our water rates uh, to actually make our loan
5: payments. Small towns often have to decide if fixing the crumbling infrastructure is worth the price. Seth Bodine, Harvest Public Media.
0: Find more from this reporting collective at harvestpublicmedia.org. Growing food might be one way to increase the variety of plants in your diet. And teaching kids to grow food can get them started on a path of healthy eating and of scientific inquiry. Our next story is from the spring of 2018, back when gathering and cooking and planting together was something we took for granted. Benjamin Franklin Elementary School. And what is your name?
3: Andrea. We play at the playground. We um we we grow stuff like um, pumpkins, flowers, bok choy, strawberries, fruit, and all kinds of
0: veggies. Andrea is describing Garden Club, an after-school program at Benjamin Franklin Elementary in Terre Haute, Indiana.
1: My name is Mark Minster, and I teach at Rose Holman. I'm an associate professor of English. I teach in what's been called the HERE program, the Home for Environmentally Responsible Engineering. And so this started out of our interest in sustainability, and we wanted student projects for our college students. And I was in Rochester, New York, and they have a program there called Rochester Roots, and they get students from RIT to work with students in local elementary schools in disadvantaged neighborhoods and they work with the kids, they build gardens, and it's a teaching opportunity um, for the college students and a learning opportunity for the college students as well as it is for the, for the elementary school students. So it seemed like a nice way to get rose Holman students out into the Terre Haute community to work with others. What I want to do is I want to develop the infrastructure get the after-school program curriculum where it's working so that this year 2017 to 18, the school year, is our baseline and then next year we work on improvement over that baseline and then it gets in a position where we can handle it. We are out here Tuesdays and Thursday afternoons uh, 25 weeks during the year. You know they're inside all day so It's nice to be able to get them outside as much as possible. We actually have ponchos for the kids in case so that if the weather's warm enough and even if it's raining, we're okay with that. We meet for two hours. It would be nice, I guess, to go just a little bit longer for people who work till five, but we also don't want to overdo it because, again, kids have been in school all day. I actually uh, had a teacher say it's nice that at the end of a day of being in school, they can really do some learning. (laughs) <laughs> which is a, it's a dark way of looking at it. But the, the, what's nice about what we're doing is even though we are also tied to Indiana academic standards, um, ours is totally inquiry-based. We have things that we want them to learn, but we don't have to do it. Right? They're not tested on any of this. And so if a kid comes up with a question like, why is this growing and not that? We can run with that and we can explore that. And so we can, we can, like, whatever comes up, we can follow their questions, which to me is the foundation of learning for science, right, is just exploring what are their questions. Mm-hmm. So that's the payoff for us from Rose Holman's side of things is from the science, technology, engineering and math side. What do you do with inquiry? Where do those questions come from? And then what could you do? Like, so you're having problems with your tomatoes. Well, what do you think is causing those problems? Why are they purple, why are they yellow? Should they be? <laughs> Should the stems be so purple? And we can research that and we can compare and we can test, that's from the science side of things. And then when it comes to solving them, well, what could we do to solve that? That's a little bit of science, but it's also a little bit of engineering, right? what, what solutions can we have to this? Do we need new drip? Do we need new soil? Do we need better lighting? Do we need a better location? It's problem solving. So. And it's the problem solving you can eat. <laughs> we get to eat some of what we've grown, which is really nice. Last fall we, we uh, harvested corn that we had planted over there in a three sisters garden. So we'd mounded it up and did the indigenous style of corn, beans and squash. And we made cornbread from the corn that we grew. We grew blue corn, cornmeal corn. Uh, and we grew popcorn and we ate the popcorn. Uh, and then we cooked up the beans and we t- uh, ate pumpkin muffins and ate pumpkin seeds. So all that stuff got, got consumed. And We try to fold in what it is that we're talking about with what we're eating. So f- this week, for instance, we're talking about potatoes. So we have a book that we'll read about potatoes. Um, I've got some hash browns in there that we'll eat. Um, and later today they're going to cut seed potatoes. We'll cut them today and then we'll plant the, the seed potatoes on Thursday. And at this point, we're now working through the, the junior master gardener curriculum so that all the kids will be certified as junior master gardeners by the time they're done with the program in a couple weeks. weeks. So, and they'll get little little certificates. We've T-shirts. They'll be certified. Um, it's, but it's only 10 weeks of the year. So in the fall, we have our own curriculum that's more designed from a kind of sustainability perspective. We're thinking ecologically in terms of the whole life cycle of things. So we get them to think about inputs and outputs of a system So what goes into a garden, what comes out of a garden, what are all the inputs, what are all the outputs, what are all the various processes in there? Um, And that comes true with eating, too. I'm looking at the tables right now that are set. All of that food that's there comes from somewhere, and it goes somewhere. Before they come in, I'm gonna have to get their compost bucket, so like they, they know to scrape the food into the compost bucket, they know to put the recycling off to the side, and then the trash, whatever's left, a little bit of trash goes into the trash can but we've got a compost bucket right outside that shed that we put together, so the kids kids help compost.
0: One of the great things about Mark's approach is that he doesn't just explain how things work or tell the kids exactly what to do. He lets them experiment and discover on their own. For instance, with the compost, he let them put whatever they wanted into it.
1: So the very first day when they were experimenting with compost, I had some kids put water bottles in there um, and some kids put, like, plastic wrappers. But that's all part of the process, is that some, some only put food, food scraps, and others put uh, plastic, others put paper, they put their napkins in there.
0: They'll check back later to see which things decomposed and which ones didn't. Probably a more memorable method than a set of rules of what goes in and what doesn't. Garden Club starts with some free time outside. Kids draw on the sidewalk with chalk, run around on the playground, while some of the adults get snacks ready inside. Today's snack includes hash browns to make the connection to one of the garden activities. We are having a
3: pretzel, um, orange, hash browns, a banana, um, bread, and I have um, sauce on it. Hash browns taste like hash browns.
0: What are they made from?
3: They're made out of hash browns and potatoes because hash browns are made out of potatoes.
0: After their snack is cleaned up, they gather around one of the college students for a story about, you guessed it, potatoes.
1: When all of my friends are on the carpets, we
8: will be ready for Maggie to read a it it's on the carpet. So this, caught. this is two old potatoes and me. Last spring at my dad's house, I found two old potatoes in the back of the cupboard. They were so old, sprouts were growing from their eyes. Gross, I tossed them in the trash. Wait, Dad said. I think we can grow new potatoes with those. I'll call your grandpa, he'll know. After talking with Grandpa, Dad and I took the potatoes to the sunniest spot in the garden. We dug, we picked out rocks, we raked the
0: soil smooth.
1: Just one pair.
0: We'll right. Then the kids head back outside for some hands-on gardening. They start out transplanting some pepper and tomato seedlings that have outgrown their pots.
1: So let's do this first, before we get any plants, let's get soil, in your groups. Can you start to... I'll
3: call after second. Here's what
1: we're going to do. Let's Go scissors. to your
6: group. We'll bring around right the soil.
1: So, this is one of Gabe's. Everyone will have two that you will get to transplant. How do you know this needs a new pot? Because the roots. Because the roots are sticking out all the way at the bottom. Those are like three inches sticking out of the bottom. So what we're going to need to do, I'm going to use one that Gabe probably won't use. That's a nice looking one. This one is a little bit smaller. It's the runt of the litter. Oh, poor guy. Well, we don't have to kill it. We just, It might not be one that we choose to, to do that with. So we're going to very gently peel off the outside. See that? And then you see the roots coming down through the bottom? It's kind of holding together nicely. Then what we will do, your assistance please, first we will have some soil in our new pots, and then we will plop that in there gently, making sure that we create plenty of room for that root. After that, we'll water it, so we will end up with two pepper plants. Yeah? Questions about this, do
0: you have questions? But it's not all fun and games. Sometimes Garden Club can get a little bit chaotic.
3: This is broke! can't scoop it! Oh, that got in my
1: eye! It's here's part of the fun. Do you see
0: the roots coming out
1: of the bottom? Yeah.
0: Alright. The transplanted seedlings will eventually go home with the kids to plant with their families. The Garden Club program works with families in the neighborhood to get a raised bed garden plot started at home if they're interested. They set them up with the structure, the soil, the plants, and some know-how. Amy Cotton is one of the parent volunteers. She talked about what it's meant for her kids to nurture plants at home.
6: Well, and a lot of things
0: that the kids have brought home, too, are
3: ready to be transplanted. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to be doing that. And they're really excited. Like, they did that. That's, you know, something they created. And that makes them happy.
1: That sense like of pride. Yeah, like yeah. they,
3: they did that. Yeah. And it makes them happy.
1: I remember Blake being happy about his beans.
3: Oh, he was ecstatic about his beans. They got so huge, and then the cat ate them. Of course, she <laughs> ate some lettuce. We had too. but he was like, Bob, you have to take a picture. We have to show that to Mark. Like, they, they grew probably about that tall, started falling over. The cat started eating them, but for them to get that big, you know, he that was like a big accomplishment for him, and he really, he was stoked,
0: so stoked. The last activity for Garden Club is getting potatoes ready for planting. The kids gather around Mark as he holds up a potato with sprouting eyes. He asks the kids questions about what they observe.
1: These are gonna be roots, you're absolutely right about that, but this is a little bit different. What do you notice about the very end, can you see?
3: It's like one of those squids from Minecraft.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it does kind of.
3: Yeah, it really does. It looks
1: like a hand. Well, on plants, what are the kind of things that open up that look kind of like hands? A flower! A flower! A flower. flower are little potato leaves. All of this is going to go under the ground, and it's going to turn into potatoes. How is it going to turn into more potatoes, do you think? This is, this is all going to be a root, but the potato that we eat is a tuber. So how's it going to turn into a tuber? How's it going to turn into something else? Why do we eat foods like potatoes? What does it give us? Nutrients. Yeah, it's got sugars and starches, which are all the kinds of things that give us energy. Well it gives the plant energy too. And so those carbohydrates, it's going to take the light from the sun and what else is it going to breathe in? What else do plants breathe in? <gasps> we breathe in oxygen and what do we breathe out? Oh. Oh,
3: it's
1: it's right carbon there. dioxide. Carbon yeah. dioxide. Excellent. Yeah. And plants breathe in carbon dioxide. So they're going to take that carbon dioxide and that light and that energy and that's going to turn into potatoes. So from this one potato we can get as many as it decides to make. But you know what? We can get more than that because everywhere there is an eye on this potato can be a different potato plant. So what we have to do before we plant this is to cut it and let that be, there's gonna be one potato plant. Two potato
3: plants.
1: Two potato plants. Did you ever do that thing where you say, one potato, two potato, three potato, four? You do that? Thank you so much.
0: And so we've come full circle. The kids are connecting the potato planting lesson with the story they just heard inside. With the aroma of hash browns still lingering in the air, it's almost time to start cleaning up and heading home. If all goes well, maybe the kids at Benjamin Franklin Elementary can get back out in the garden this spring. If not. Maybe in time for a fall garden. Still ahead, how a food community centered around gathering has adjusted to the pandemic restrictions and a cocktail recipe for sipping around the fire. Stay with us. After harsh and frequent criticism from animal rights activists and environmentalists, many farmers and people who work in agriculture launched an effort to tell their stories to the broader public. A decade later, this effort has worked through several themes. With a new president coming, Harvest Public Media's Amy Mayer looks at how ag messaging may change again. Back in 2013, fresh off
8: Barack Obama's re-election, agriculture groups were hitting their storytelling stride. The United Nations had given them a convenient factoid. Mike Vandelot is a plant breeder who at the time was with the seed company Winfield.
1: We take a look at the planet going from 7 billion people to 9 billion people over the next 20, 25 years. Obviously, the need to increase food production is very, very important.
8: Farmers signed up for media training, started talking to reporters more, and engaged on platforms like YouTube to spread the message. Still, environmentalists and advocates for the hungry would constantly point out that nearly 40% of Midwest corn becomes ethanol, feeding cars, not people. Then ag groups and companies, some of which sponsored social media campaigns and videos, position themselves to get their messages in front of the candidates vying for the 2016 presidential nominations. As a candidate, Donald Trump hinted at something that would spark the mantra that replaced Feed the World. Here he is in Des Moines more than a year before the twenty sixteen caucuses, railing on China for devaluing its currency. And what it's gonna do is make it impossible
7: for you to sell your product. It's gonna make it impossible for you to compete. And they're getting
8: away by the time time Trump took office, many ag leaders had coalesced around a new message.
1: Trade is important to farmers.
8: Brian Keel is director of Farmers for Free Trade, a group that wanted to tell a different story.
1: The folks who founded Farmers for Free Trade said, well, wait a minute, without trade... U.S. agriculture goes down the drain. I mean, 20 percent of farm revenue comes from exports.
8: The U.S. and China lobbed tariffs on each other's goods, and many farmers watched sales in their biggest market, nosedive. As the tariffs wore on, the U.S. Department of Agriculture launched the Market Facilitation Program, a series of payments to help affected farmers recover. A new slogan was born, trade not aid.
1: Certainly right after the first round of MFP payments, that became a mantra that we heard from a lot of people.
8: But Iowa native Austin Farrick, who's an ag policy researcher at Yale, sees a coordinated public relations game at play. He says that line's likely to be replaced.
5: They'll hire some, you know, expensive New York City ad firm to come up with some, you know, Catchy little jingle.
8: Farrick says he's a bit cynical about the major commodity groups and agribusinesses. He says they use these catchphrases to curry favor with the public. Then the biggest checkoff programs and farm bureaus lobby in D.C. and state capitals for policies that benefit their investment portfolios, not necessarily individual farmers.
5: They started off with good intentions, but I just think they lost their way.
8: He says now many of these groups are too big and too far removed from the farm. But farmers stick with them for some of the benefits they offer, even if they don't like the entire policy agenda.
5: I mean, they are doing the most rational economic thing right now.
8: So while they say they want trade, not aid, Farrick says when the check arrives, they cash it. Kevin Ross is chairman of the National Corn Growers Association and farms in southwest Iowa. He joined a virtual panel sponsored by Farmers for Free Trade in December.
6: You know, the farmer wants to derive their, their profits from the marketplace.
8: When they can't, he says, the federal support might keep them in
0: business. For a lot of folks to keep things rolling here and keep the ag economy moving forward in the last few years. But uh, we're very hopeful that that is uh, in the rearview mirror for a bit.
8: What would Farrick's next great ag line be?
5: I always think localized supply chains, but I'm too wonky with my words.
8: You think? But as the Biden administration settles in, it's likely some catchy phrase will emerge as so-called advocates gear up for whatever comes next.
0: Amy Mayer, Harvest Public Media. Harvest Public Media brings you agricultural reporting from the heartland. Find more at harvestpublicmedia.org. Kate Young here. This is Earth Eats. Whether it's worrying about the vulnerabilities in our national food supply or wondering if we should start baking sourdough, throughout the pandemic, many of us have been thinking about food more than ever. The goals of Slow Food USA a grassroots organization focusing on food justice for all, couldn't be more timely. But during the rise of a global pandemic, organizers had to think about new and novel ways to share their message. Earlier this year, EarthEats producer Josephine McRobbie spoke with Slow Food USA Executive Director Anna Muley.
9: My name is Anna Muley. I'm the Executive Director of Slow Food USA We're based in Brooklyn, but we have local chapters throughout the United States, and our headquarters is in Italy. Yeah, the word of the month is pivot. The word of the season is pivot.
6: The grassroots nonprofit Slow Food USA operates in 160 countries around the world, with a USA wing that's home to over 150 local chapters. Members include farmers, fishers, teachers, chefs, activists, and scientists all around the country, all devoted to a goal of good, clean, and fair food for all.
9: A lot of our work revolves around gatherings, bringing people together, meeting in person, enjoying food together, and really you know, learning about the whole chain from farm to fork through food, but also enjoying the taste of food as well.
6: In the wake of COVID-19, Slow Food USA has had to find new ways for members to connect.
9: All our well-thought-out strategies don't work anymore, so it's a matter of being really flexible, being really nimble, and just trying new things to see what, what really works and what is most effective to respond to the needs of the community.
0: So this is a really nice frame. What you're seeing along the top is all completely capped nectar that's been turned into honey already. This is stores, reserves for all the baby bees that are going to be
6: Beekeeper born Jennifer South. Holmes is showing off her bee frames from her backyard in Stewart, Florida. She's presenting as part of Slow Food Live, a Zoom-based Skillshare program that covers topics like gardening and
9: cooking.
0: The cells that are empty on the left may contain
9: eggs and younger... So our first one about sourdough we had over 500 people register for that one and it's gotten thousands of views online now you know we had a session about Japanese curry bricks how do you make Japanese cur- curry bricks um these things that people wouldn't have time for before but now they find themselves at home and eager to experiment in high seas low
2: sea I'm gonna be your friend I'm going to be your friend.
1: Awesome. Awesome. (laughs) Thank you, Melanie.
9: Thank you. Thank you so much.
1: Wonderful. What a great way to start this off. Uh, Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining the second installment of the...
9: So Slow Fish was one of the events that got canceled.
1: (laughs) And we just heard from Melanie Brown, who's a dear friend a colleague, and the person who taught me how to pick sockeye out of a set net in Naknek, Alaska last summer.
9: Slow Fish is an amazing international group of people who come together around sustainable fishing. And our Slow Fish event in New Hampshire was going to bring together indigenous fish harvesters, small-scale producers, you know, everyone who is in the, in the chain of fishing. Um, Just please of fishing. remember
1: that part of the safety of this forum aside from the guaranteed distancing of at least the length of a mature sturgeon, means that all comments should be thoughtful and respectful. So let's jump in and get ready In to gatherings do
6: that. that were moved to webinars, the Slow Fish members shared the strategies, frustrations, and successes of a changing food economy. Anna has seen this kind of activity throughout the organization's chapters and groups.
9: Needs on the ground are so different. So, for example, some ranchers- used to sell primarily to restaurants and to airports and to like large scale food distribution platforms. And now they're struggling because they're, you know, they're trying to pivot to online sales to direct to consumer. If they're able to pivot that way, they've seen a really amazing response. You know, people are eager and ready to buy online, but they don't necessarily have the technologies and the processes set in place to to do that quickly and effectively. So they need to, you know, they're working overtime. They're working around the clock to fulfill these online sales.
6: Not every food producer is able to set up an online store, delivery protocol, and customer management system on their own.
9: So Slow Food East Bay, for example, is establishing like a food hub at a central farm where these small-scale producers can drop off their goods and then they and partners will manage all the logistics of getting that to you know, low income communities who need food right now or to, you know, organizing a drive by pickup kind of situation. I think it's all about logistics right now. We believe delicious food is a right. It's not like just a nice thing to have. It's something that every everyone should have access to.
6: The slow food movement started in the 1980s in Rome during a protest of a planned McDonald's on the Spanish steppes. Its mission seems increasingly difficult to reach. And now the cracks seem even more visible as members work for fair and good
9: food for all. I mean, this is what happens in pandemics, right? That vulnerable communities are especially affected because they were already at a disadvantage.
6: Slow Food USA is concerned that these inequalities will intensify if policy decisions leave out people like their members. And so they've worked to step up fundraising and advocacy efforts.
9: We're looking especially to make sure that small-scale family farmers and ranchers, community-based fishers, are not overlooked in things like the CARES Act. Our worry in all of this is that You know, there's a limited amount of funding, and we don't want big ag to win. We want funds to go to the small-scale family farmers, the folks who are really active players in the local communities, and making sure that those communities are getting healthy food.
6: Like all of us, Anna and her colleagues are searching for meaning as the weeks wear on. You know, I think this moment,
9: we all want answers on when this is going to end, and I also want answers, but I think we can also lean into this moment a little bit. And I think this is a moment to develop some new habits that focus on a really healthy and robust food economy. And how can we, how can we hold on to those um, as, as the uh, pandemic slows down? think that's the message of slow food is we really want to help people understand those values of living slow of understanding where your food comes from and hang on to those
0: that was producer josephine McRobbie. find links from this story at eartheats.org in the kind of year we've just had? We might need more than a day or two to celebrate the arrival of 2021 and the hope for a better tomorrow. If you're looking for cocktail suggestions for ringing in the new year, look no further than our local distillery, Cardinal Spirits. Last year, I met with Scott Lowe, who showed me how to make one of his favorite winter drinks.
7: This is a rum walnut Alexander, so it's a riff on a brandy Alexander. And instead of using the brandy, I'm using um, our Lake House spiced rum and the Cardinal nocchino. I'm going to be using a little bit of uh, heavy cream and some demerara syrup, which is a heavy molasses forward syrup. It's a one-to-one syrup, simple syrup. And to start, I'm going to use two ounces of the Lake House rum, which is a spiced rum. Spiced forward rum, we use a lot of cinnamon and clove and we also use a ton of citrus we use dried citrus uh, peel mainly, mainly orange peel and on the second distillation we use fresh orange peel so it gives a nice citrus background to it so two ounces of the lake house rum and then i'm going to use one ounce of the walnut liqueur the nocino and this spirit by itself just to me screams winter cold weather just because of the nice warming spices of clove and cinnamon and a little bit of lemon peel. But uh, just to sip by itself by a fire is just as satisfactory to me as as it is like maybe a brandy or cognac. But this is such a super, super cool spirit. I'm going to use one ounce of heavy cream. This is the classic traditional ingredient in a brandy and an Alexander. And then I'm gonna use one half ounce of the Demerara syrup. And then I'm going to add ice to our shaker tin. (laughs) I'm going to shake this for about 20 seconds just to get a nice dilution and, and just to chill it really, really well. I'm gonna place my Hawthorne strainer on top of the shaker tin, and I'm gonna double strain. Because even, especially with cream-based drinks, if it gets diluted too quickly, it's just, it just is a, a watery mess. And I'm using a coupe glass for this, which is a type of martini glass or a cordial glass. It's a bit larger than a cordial glass. Uh, but it's a coupe glass that is very popular in uh, strain cocktails that are especially like an alexander and i'm going to take a little duster of nutmeg i'm going to place a piece of paper over half of the coupe glass and i'm going to dust one half of the cocktail with nutmeg and the nutmeg is going to have a very nice warming quality as well as very nice
0: Aroma. Aroma. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and that um.
7: is the rum walnut Alexander.
0: Well, that is so beautiful. I love that design of the dusting of nutmeg across the top. It's really nice. And it's so simple.
7: It's so simple to be just a little creative uh, with your garnishes. Um, it doesn't have to be anything extravagant or spectacular, just something really simple. But like just doing it over the half of the glass just has a nice eye appeal to it. And I always like to go in. When I'm, when I'm taking a first sip of this particular cocktail because you're gonna nose the nutmeg first before you drink, and that's another thing with cocktails. As you think of cocktails, think of how a chef approaches his food in the same way. He uses the finest ingredients. Um, and you're also eating first when you sit down. You eat when your plate arrives with your eyes first before you actually even taste it. And that's pretty important in a cocktail as well.
0: Do you mind if I try it? <laughs> Please do. Well, nutmeg is my very favorite spice of all. That is so nice, (laughs) the the Nocino really comes alive with the cream.
7: I agree and I I was kind of interested to see the biggest thing I was interested in this cocktail was to see how the lake house rum was going to play with the Nocino since they both have such strong flavors on their own and sometimes we have two spirits that are very complex on their own that they don't marry well together but I think with the cream and, and, this, and, the, and the Demerara, bring it, kind of tying it all together, you can still taste the rum qualities in the citrus and the, and the orange peel in the rum, and you can also taste that, that, that clove with, with the Nocino.
0: Yeah, I'm familiar with the Nocino, but not with the rum so much, but I'm definitely tasting something different, mm-hmm. and it's probably that, yeah. um, almost an orange or something. Yeah,
7: definitely there's a dry and, and, and fresh orange peel in the distillation process of the, of the Lake House Rum. But that's something that we wanted to achieve with the rum too. A lot of the mass-produced rums have, you know, artificial colors and they're very sickeningly sweet. Uh, We wanted to avoid all that. We wanted to be very spice-forward and let the spices kind of speak for themselves in the rum and not have it to be really super sweet.
0: I wanted to hear more about the process of infusing the spices into the spirits.
7: So we have what is called a botanical basket, a metal basket. And what we do is we take a bunch of different botanicals depending on what we're distilling at the time. For the rum, we are using, um, we're usually definitely using a a lot of orange peel. And we're definitely using a lot of lemon peel. We do uh, vanilla, cardamom, cinnamon, uh, black pepper. And then we have a secret ingredient that uh, we just can't really give out. But so we take all those different botanicals in their purest natural form, spices. And then we run our, this basically, the rum is gonna be a sugar cane base. Everything else that we do pretty much at the distillery is using our vodka base. So this is going to be using our sugarcane base, which is all rums. We run the liquid through the columns and as the column passes over the last, as the liquid passes over the last column, it infuses with the different botanicals and aromatics and then vapor locks itself and then becomes, uh, that's, becomes the rum. We, we were fortunate enough to have a three column still, uh, a copper still that we, that we love, to use and that's kind of what is unique to making our spirits.
0: Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate this. This is great. Scott Lowe's Rum Alexander features the walnut liqueur Noccino. Cardinal usually has a limited supply of this specialty spirit, and its production is dependent on a particular crop from a specific location. All this to say, don't be surprised if you don't find it on their current online ordering menu. Check back with them next year. Nochino is bound to return eventually. Thanks for tuning in this week, and we'll see you next time. Cheers.
2: EarthEats team includes Aobon Binder, Spencer Bowman, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Peyton Knoblick, Josephine McRobbie, Harvest Public Media,
0: and me, Renee Reed. Special thanks this week to Stephen Lalovich, Cosmo Pearson Young, Mark Minster, and everyone at Benjamin Franklin's Garden Club, Anna Mule and the Slow Foodies, Scott Lowe, and everyone at Cardinal Spirits.
2: Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young and our executive producer is John Bailey. Hey.